Hey everyone, welcome to Finding History, the podcast where I, Victoria, examine the lives and actions of historical figures with an emphasis on monarchy. I also touch base on political movements, gender politics, and much more, but I do all of this with my own special twist. This podcast is a place I come to share history and how the actions of a few shape the world we know today, the good, the bad, and the downright terrifying. In this podcast, I do swear, so if you have little ones that love to parrot foul words, maybe wait till they are tucked in to give this podcast a listen. I talk about monarchy, religion, and colonialism, so one can expect me to drop a few F-bombs and sea grenades, but all well-deserved, I assure. If you like what you hear and you want to show your support, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria, and welcome to part two of my two-part series on the bravest warrior France has ever known, L'Enfant de Dieu, Child of God, Joan of Arc. Also, happy June, everyone. It is hot AF in the Northwest, and I, like, hate it. I've never been a fan of the heat. It's just not my jam. Take, like... Maybe it's because I'm a Sagittarius. Maybe it's because I just run hot. I don't know. Not my not my jam. But yeah, I can't believe it. It's already like halfway through the year. Like what the fuck is time? You know, I still think it's 2020. And on, on bad days, I think it's still 2006. So what does that tell you about my age? But yep, looks like we made it halfway through the year. So happy June. Oh, and happy Pride Month, everybody. So... Maybe this year we can celebrate safely, like last year was the time of the plague, and well, it's still definitely the time of the plague, so, um, but now versus last year, at least we have a vaccine, yada yada, but still the time of the plague, so if you do choose to celebrate, just be safe and be mindful. Uh, To any LGBTQ audience members I may have, you are very welcome and appreciated. I feel as a historian and a member of the queer spectrum that I have a responsibility to share snippets of queer history, be it in monarchs or art or politics. You know, Western Europe, uh, Western Europe has not been kind to the queer community and medieval times was rough for everyone, but uh, (laughs) it was definitely not a great time to be gay. Queers may not have been allowed to love openly or have had the language to identify who they were or how they felt, but they've always been a part of everything. Whether they ruled nations, led armies, worked in lavender fields, or they were the village butcher or whatnot. Queer history needs to be preserved and protected and passed down so people can see themselves reflected throughout time. You know, some folks think Joan of Arc might have been queer, and she's actually recognized as a queer icon. Contemporary LGBTQ people recognize a kindred spirit and role model in her defiance of gender rules. Joan believed strongly in God and in cross-dressing. She insisted that God wanted her to wear men's clothes, which one could take her or one could take as her being queer, lesbian, non-binary, or transgender. And because these terms did not exist during Joan's lifetime, we simply do not know how Joan would have identified. 
Cross-dressing was illegal, and it was against the Bible, and in some parts of Europe, what, it was punishable by death. Cross-dressing is what the English used against Joan to justify her murder. Therefore, Joan was executed for the same crime many queer individuals were also condemned for. Joan's belief that God was the source of her gender-bending queerness makes her especially inspiring for the LGBTQ communities. In addition to this episode on Joan, who I'm now claiming as a queer patron saint, and in honor of Pride Month, I will be releasing an episode on this Arthurian legend I discovered while I was researching uh, for my Troba Ritz episode uh, a few months back. It's called Silence, or Les Romans de Silence, and it was discovered in 1910 in the UK in a box marked Unimportant Documents. It is about a child born a girl, but raised as a boy. Uh, because they are born a girl, they cannot inherit land, and so her dad, or their dad, um, an infamous knight, chooses to raise them as a boy. Their parents call them Silence, and the story goes back and forth between male and female pronouns, and follows Silence on random adventures. The story is definitely a product of its time. Like 100 pages in, and there were two anti-Semitic references, misogyny on every page, and slander against the Irish. But I had never heard of it before, and it sounded super interesting to me, and yeah, so I'll be releasing an episode later this month. And I think the general setup I kind of want to do with that episode is just maybe read a few passages from it, talk about the characters. Uh, so kind of just like a book review and then maybe just a little bit of history on the book itself. And if you want more details on that, you can follow me on social media. And yeah, because I'll be posting updates on when it's going to be airing and such. Anyway, let me get back to Joan here. So this episode is going to follow up with the events after Charles VII's coronation, and it will include details of Joan's trial and her execution at the hands of the English. So I say English, but it's a bit more complicated than that. Like, there were many folks like that were complicit and responsible for the ruin of Joan, and I'll definitely touch more on that later. I should offer an additional disclaimer with this episode. Yes, there will be the usual swearing I do, uh, but in addition to that, I'll be describing in detail the process of execution by fire and just the psychological torture that Joan went through. Uh, so it is going to be a bit of a gory episode, and I know some folks... Well, some folks might argue that we don't really need to know the gory details of Joan's death, um, and I, I respect that, but, like, I think it, you know, I, I would like to discuss it. It was violent as fuck, and unfortunately, Joan was one of many women burned to death at the stake under ecclesiastical uh, and monarch order uh, for doing nothing but challenging oppression and, well, being a woman. So I do think, at least in my opinion, it is important to discuss the gory details. You know, she wasn't even... A woman woman. She was like barely a woman. She was a teenager for fuck's sake. So just a heads up, expect some gore. Oh, and again, there's a lot of French names, a lot of French people in this, French places, and my French is so-so. So, -so. so um, I may mispronounce some things and I'm sorry if I do. I don't mean to offend. It's just, sorry. Here is part two of Joan of Arc, the Maid of Orléans. 
Joan was at Charles's side during his coronation, but that same morning, she was writing a letter to the Duke of Burgundy, also known as Philip the Good, who was responsible for the Burgundian alliance with England. Philip refused to attend Charles's coronation, as the Dauphin had killed his father, John the Fearless, God, I love medieval names, in 1412, or no, 1419. Joan wanted to make her move on Paris right after the coronation, but Charles insisted she cool off. And here's a snippet of the letter she sent to the Duke. Great and mighty prince, Duke of Burgundy, Joan the maid calls upon you by the king of heaven. If you want to make war, wage it against the Saracens. Medieval Europeans referred to Muslims and Arabs as Saracens. It was definitely a xenophobic term that would be used to describe all non-Christian people. The use of it continued well into the Tudor age. I'm not excusing the fact that Joan used this term, but Joan was a product of her time. She truly believed that the French monarchy was divinely chosen. Like, yeah, right. Okay. Uh, like, they weren't. No monarch was divinely chosen, but France believed they were. England believed they were. All of Europe was like, yep, God appointed us. They even mentioned that in The Crown. Like, there's a scene where, I think it's like first season, where Elizabeth is talking to her grandmother, and her grandmother says something like, We must give the people something to love and admire. The crown is divinely appointed by God. Like, okay, lady, I don't know what God you're referring to. Like, Lord Satan, the goblin god, like, what are you talking about? Stop lying. And this was also post-Crusades, like, as you know, like, the Crusades was really just European terrorism, but they, like, really played like they were doing God's work, and they were noble and chivalric, and just, like, really romanticized the fuck out of murder. Like, they glorified the F out of the Crusades, and stories were passed down from monarch to priest to peasants about how brilliant the knights of Europe were defending the Holy Land. And Joan hated heresy, and of course the countless tales of the big bad Arabs stealing the Holy Land was just the kind of fuckery the church and the rich people loved to preach. Like, sorry Joan, Jesus was a Saracen, as you would call him. Like, not Mamma Mia Jesus. Like, he was, he was a brown man. Take it as you will. This kind of speech, I think, is what French nationalists admire about Joan. Like, uh, a lot of people claim Joan as their icon. Like, unfortunately, it's not just the queer community. It's also fucking Nazis. Like, the Vichy government was very pro-Nazi Germany and used Joan as their icon. And they and the French nationalists today uh, like the idea of Joan telling outsiders to stay out of France and... um her use of medieval slurs. It's totally gross, and from what I've heard, many of them will travel to Domremy and do, like, Nazi shit outside of her home. Like, just really pathetic. You know, Joan was a product of her time that, you know, validated, she validated prejudices against non-Christians. Like, yes, this sentiment still unfortunately exists today, but folks should know better. Like, Joan couldn't read and she, you know, she was denied an education, and they were very isolated. Uh, it was very isolating times. Like, 
she low-key has an excuse like people today absolutely do not it's embarrassing and really telling that people don't know better like joan was not a fascist but the folks who killed her were joan hated heresy in all forms and a couple of months before her capture she would write a threatening letter to the heretics of bohemia whom she promised annihilation if they did not return back to the true faith and I'll touch more on them in a minute, but it kind of makes me wonder what kind of military career Joan would have had had she not been murdered. The English and Burgundians were like high-key freaking out uh, after the coronation of Charles VII. Like this was the first win France had in a long time, and it was a really big one. And uh, remember I said on the last pod episode that they thought Joan was a demon? demon yes and also a witch like they believed that france's success came from sorcery so they really truly believe that joan was a fucking demon wizard Rons, which is uh, where the coronation of charles VII took place in case you forgot and uh just a heads up so i've heard a lot of uh pronunciations of this word uh so it said um or it's spelled r-e- I-M-S, and so it looks like Reams or Roms, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's Rons. Uh, I did check with Google, so just FYI. So anyways, Rons was less than 100 miles from Paris, and the citizens of Paris were just growing restless, like, Ermagerd, the virgin witch, she's going to come get us. She's so close. English-occupied Paris had begun preparing for battle and invested, like, a whole lot of cash into their uh, fortifications. Like, guys, the, the French were just like, like, guys, we got to prepare. We got to put all our cash, all our livres into making this place, like, impenetrable. And that's exactly what they did because they were scared of a girl. Joan had accomplished the impossible tasks of what the angels had requested from her. Since she had completed them, she had no defined quest on which to fix her purpose, and she was not only uncomfortable without a concrete goal, but also unmoored at the apex of her fame. Like, Joan was basically a rock star in France. Peasantry would reach out to her and try to touch her or the white horse that she rode in on. As far as the voices were concerned, uh, their advice kind of shifted. Like, it shifted from giving direct orders to Joan to Joan actually pleading with them for guidance. Once France's rightful capital, Paris, was restored uh, to French rule, the English would be forced to travel back to the Channel, and thus Charles's legitimacy as king would be more certain. So taking Paris was definitely a big deal. On September 3rd, Joan was accompanied by the Dukes of Elencon and Bourbon, along with a few counts, their troops, and Gilles de Ray, who would later be known as an infamous child killer, but I'll touch more on him at the end of this podcast. They lodged at the village of La Chapelle, and after days of performing recognitions and skirmishes on the very skates of Paris, you know, surveying the lands before the battle, Joan had prayed at St. Genevieve Chapel the morning of Thursday, September 8th, 1429. Joan and her entourage made their way to Port St. Honoré, which was a city gate of Paris. This battle would be known as the Siege of Paris. Joan led the army to capture the city, and she charged towards the main gate, which was guarded by a water-filled moat. 
the French failed to capture any section of the city and suffered heavy casualties. The defenses of Paris had definitely gotten stronger. Boulevards were constructed in front of the gates, houses built next to the walls were knocked down, gunpowder weapons were mounted, stones were gathered, as well as 1,200 cannonballs. Like, it was wild. And at this time, Paris was surrounded by walls that were 30 feet high. A YouTube channel that I follow, Biographics, had made a Star Wars comparison to the Siege of Paris, which was like, Joan attacking Paris was like a starfighter trying to take on the Death Star. Joan was shot in the thigh by a crossbow and insisted on fighting more, but her men dragged her away into a trench nearby, kicking and screaming. The English man who had shot her had laughed and called her a slut and a whore. Rude, you just fucking shot me. There was no point in returning as they were losing, and after four hours of battle, it wasn't going anywhere, and the troops were called to retreat. It was a win for the English. When Joan rose the next day, ready to take Paris, Charles and others were like, nah, we're not going to do that right now, so let's move on. Joan was feeling aimless and a bit confused as to what to do next. When you're a messenger from God and what you said was going to happen doesn't happen, well, then what do you do with yourself? The people close to Joan were getting cold feet about what Joan was believing. They were pleased with Orléans and pleased with uh, Charles's coronation, but the siege of Paris had failed. Like, what was next from Joan? Okay, bear with me. I'm going to say a lot of French-sounding things. Uh, Clément de Fauquembert reported to Le Journal de Bourgeois de Paris stating that the French lost as they were misled by a creature shaped like a woman. Or, hear me out, Clément de Fauquembert, uh, Paris was scared shitless and invested a ton of money in preventing a teenage girl and her army from annihilating their asses. So, you know, there, I fixed it for you. They were, they were terrified of Jones, so they poured all that they had into their reinforcements. Booyah. In October of 1429, Joan was still healing from her thigh wound and was sent to stay with the king's financier, René de Boulanger, and his wife Marguerite. This is where Joan met Catherine de la Rochelle, a seer of sorts. According to medievalist Bernard, Catherine was a member of a vagabond lunatic fringe. Joan was basically sent to stay with René to heal, like, to heal, yes, but also to report back if Catherine was legit or not. Catherine claimed to be visited by a lady covered in white and gold at night. Joan challenged Catherine to produce the lady in white and sacrifice two nights of sleep, only to be proven wrong. When Joan pressed Catherine about the mysterious lady, Catherine told Joan she fell asleep and she tried to rouse her awake. By when the lady appeared, but Joan was unmovable. Joan decided to sleep in the day and give it one more go, only to be disappointed yet again. Joan told Catherine to return to her husband, run her household, and to nourish her children. Basically, hey girl, you're a liar, go back to doing woman's work. Joan wrote to Charles and told her that, or told him that this woman's business is folly and that she was an uninteresting fraud. 
Catherine later testified at the ecclesiastical court at Paris that Joan would have left her prison cell by the aid of the devil had she not been well guarded. Checking if Catherine was legit or not was one of the many flim-flam errands Charles would send Joan on. Charles sent Joan to claim Saint-Pierre-le-Moutier, which was more village than town, but it was fortified. Her army, of which uh, she was only a minor commander, was woefully undersupplied. The king was not really paying for Joan's army, and they began to desert her. On December 29th, Joan and her family were ennobled by Charles VII as a reward for her actions. I don't think this was common at all, though, like, I'm, but I'm also not sure how Joan's family completely benefited from this rise in rank, especially as Joan's father, Jacques, uh, did not live long after his daughter's murder. Still, this was considered a pretty big deal. And uh, the town of Domremy was also free of taxation, which would last until the French Revolution. Some historians see this move as Charles's way of uh, encouraging Joan to retire, like, thanks for giving me my kingdom, Joan, but time to return to the flock uh, like a good subject. So I think there are some doubts over whether Joan was ev or Joan ever received knighthood or not, or I guess not doubts, like a bit of confusion. Like, my guess is she never did, even though she displayed all the supposed traits of chivalry. Like, she was granted a coat of arms, which is typically, like, a thing that belongs to knights, but she never could claim the title. And I think by knighting Joan, that would break whatever boys' club rule, that, and they just couldn't allow that. I've also read that France was really strict on who could become a knight and who could not, and Joan being a woman, absolutely not, never. And even if she wasn't a woman, I mean, if she was a boy, I think it was very difficult for peasantry to become a knight, ever. Yeah, that sounds about right. I, if I remember correctly, there was like uh, some information that I read when I was researching my uh, brief history of courtly love and something really fucking dumb where it was like, no, a peasant can't be a knight because... That means they don't have noble blood and you can't be a knight if you're not noble. And I get that Joan was ennobled, but she was still a woman. So they were like, fuck no. As described in L'Ordain de Chivalry, the investiture was a public sacrament that began in ritual purification. The candidate for knighthood first was bathed the bath symbolizing the washing away of his sins. Then he was clothed in a white robe, symbolizing his determination to defend God's law, with a narrow belt to remind him to shun the sins of the flesh. In the church he was invested with his accouterments, the gilded spur to give him courage to serve God, the sword to fight the enemy and protect the poor people from the rich. LOL, they never did that. And finally, he received the coulet, a blow of the hand on the shoulder or head, in remembrance of him who ordained you. Honestly, guys, I don't know, um, but like, reading that just kind of reminded me of the KKK, and like, like, didn't they or don't they like base themselves off of knighthood or 
whatever some bullshit Christian purity lie they love to tell themselves. Like, God, I'm not even going to Google that. I don't want to Google that. But like, the dressed in white robe with a narrow belt doing God's work, like that sounds, sounds like generational violence to moi. So, gross. Anyway, the ennobling of Joan's family would be the last considerate act Charles made for Joan or her family. Like, as folks close to Charles would tell him that Joan was becoming too prideful and too powerful, it is speculated, and I believe it to be true, that Charles was jealous that the people loved Joan way more than they loved him. And in 1430, Charles began to distance himself from Joan. The next few months following the attempted siege of Paris, which, mind you, Charles VII only gave Joan one attempt and one day to capture Paris, a gigantor, fully loaded city, which to me, honestly, to me, it was kind of like a setup designed to make her fail, like just to guarantee she was going to fail. An impossible task. But after that, Joan was not too sure what else to do other than continue with the king's bullshit missions, um, though she still had visions of French independence. And it's just bizarre that the king of France was like, nah, French independence is not that important to me. I'm going to go make alliances with England and the Burgundians instead. Like, Charles is just a shifty-eyed goblin. In response to Charles setting up a truce with the English and the Burgundians, Jones stated, No matter how many truces are made like this, I am not at all happy, and I do not know if I will keep them, but if I do, it will only be to protect the honor of the king, and also that they do not take advantage of the blood royale. Joan clearly disliked this fake-ass friendship, but was also trying to gauge what else she should be doing. I mentioned earlier that Joan had sent a letter to the Hussites of Bohemia, who were a Czech proto-Protestant Christian movement, that followed the teachings of Jean Hus, who was a representative of the Bohemian Reformation. Basically, I'm not going to get too into it, but basically it was like a precursor for the Protestant Reformation that would take Europe by storm in the Renaissance. Joan hated any form of heresy, so she sent them a nasty letter telling them to remove your madness and foul superstition, taking away either your heresy or your lives. Joan was not subtle. She was like, nah, you guys gotta get out. Joan even tried to persuade the English to leave France and to instead travel with her to Bohemia to raise hell or raise heaven. The English never responded and just did as they always do stayed where they were not welcome. Joan had gone to the town of Lannis-sur-Man, which had been at war with the English Burgundians for some time, and Joan went to assist the town in their battle. She requested reinforcements from Charles, but he sent none, and didn't bother to respond at all. Joan spent three weeks in the city, making war with the Anglo-Burgundians. Her energy, of course, sparked rumors of sorcery amongst them. Langy sur was fairly close to Paris, and when word got out that the city was now under French rule, the English began to desert their fighting positions. English abandonment was so bad that the Duke of Bedford had to issue an edict on May 3rd of 1430 against captains and soldiers that refused to embark for France. Avoiding the draft resulted in repossession of all goods, 
or I guess possession of all goods. I don't know. Uh, reposition of all goods, imprisonment, or even death. Real quick, uh, I don't think I mentioned this in my last episode. Uh, so England was currently under the rule of Henry VI, who was at the time a very young child, and he was the only son of Henry V. Well, I think I mentioned that bit, but I didn't mention Bedford. So the Duke of Bedford, a.k.a. John of Lancaster, was the brother of Henry V and served as regent for Henry VI. So he's basically the voice of England and occupied parts of France. Like, just an FYI for y'all who are like, who the fuck is the Duke of Bedford? Joan had spent some time in Langy, and after her win, a family came to her with the body of an infant. They told her the child had been dead for three days, and they feared for its soul. Like, if you die before you're baptized, you will go straight to hell, or not hell, like purgatory. And uh, even if you're a baby, like you're born a sinner. So Joan described the body as black, as the coat, the coat of her chainmail. And she was in the church at the time, kneeling before the image, before an image of the Virgin. And this family approached her. So Joan prayed with the baby's family, and then life appeared within the baby's body. The child was then quickly baptized, and then it passed away. This revival of a dead child was brought up at Joan's trial, as they were trying to assume that, you know, she used, like, Diablo magic to to bring this baby back to life. But Joan did not say that she brought the child back to life, just that life had appeared in the child when they all prayed. Like, a wise choice of words, since she knew exactly what they were trying to spin. In May, Joan traveled to Compiègne in the night under a new moon with her army in tow. They entered the town in the early hours of morning. The early hours of the morning on the 23rd of May. All 400 of them. Joan was ambushed by the Burgundians. The enemy turned toward Joan in such a great number that those of her company could not hope to save her. When the English and Burgundians realized Joan was isolated, but with a few of her men, an archer who was described as a rough and very sour man, full of much spite because a woman who so much had been spoken about should have defeated so many brave men as she had done, grabbed the edge of her cloth of gold doublet and threw her from her horse flat to the ground. Basically a medieval incel. Joan was captured with her brother Pierre and Jeanne de Olonne. So I've read varying reports of how many Burgundians there actually were, like compared to Joan's army, um, but I read there were up to like 6,000 Burgundians, you know, and Joan I think had like 400 people, so she was very understaffed and she had positioned herself in the rear of the army to kind of sort of offer herself up as a sacrifice. She is stated to have told her men to continue fighting without her. Joan and her brother and Jean were sent to Marne, where the Duke of Burgundy came to see her. In telling the people of Rons of Joan's capture, Renaud de Chartres accused her, accused Joan, of rejecting counsel, acting willfully, and was full of pride due to the rich garment she had begun to wear. From the moment Joan assumed the attire of an aristocratic male, her every lace and every seam had been the object of scrutiny and gossip. 
this was pretty unfair, obviously, like this whole thing was unfair because Joan had received, you know, gifts from everybody. She had received, you know, from fine objects to fine clothing. So it's ridiculous that they used the fact that her taste became a bit more extravagant than she was used to against her, but they used everything against Joan. It is unheard of that a person of Joan's class would be taken a prisoner. Like, she may have been ennobled, but Joan was still seen as a peasant to so many people. And peasants don't get captured. They get murdered. So uh, the Burgundians, they thought that Joan would be of some value. So they ransomed her. Charles made no attempt to save her. Like some rando archbishop from France, I'm sorry, I did not write down the name. I wish I did. Um, but some rando archbishop of France was like, uh, when he heard of the ransom, like, uh, we actually have a boy who says he also hears voices. So we don't really need her anymore. Like, okay, man, cool. Fuck you. The incel archer who pulled Joan down from her horse was in service of the bastard of Vendôme, a vassal Virgin II of Luxembourg, who was himself a liege of the Duke of Burgundy. So a troll for a troll for a even richer troll. The bastard of Vendôme was more joyous of Joan's capture than if he had had the king in his hands. A Burgundian chronicler reported the Burgundian and English partisans were very joyous, more than if they had taken 500 combatants, for they did not fear or dread either captains or any other war chief as much as they had up until that day this maid appeared. During Joan's captivity under Burgundian rule, she was referred to as Omas, which is a slur meaning man-woman or masculine woman, and they also referred to her as a deformed woman. Joan's first cell, so her first prison cell, was at a Burgundian fortress, and it was a small cell with stone walls and stone floor with a single square window. She was kept there for six weeks as negotiations between England and France broke down once again. Joan stayed there till, I believe, July 10th, and she was allowed to keep the company of her squire, Jeanne de Alone, and her brother Pierre. Joan was moved to a fancier part of the fortress and was allowed to stay in the company of women. She was in the company of some wealthy Luxembourg women, uh, all named Jeanne, and they encouraged her to wear women's clothing, and attempted to appeal to her vanity by offering her fine silks. But Joan refused. She claimed she did not have God's permission to dress as a woman. England was actively working to collect the funds for Joan's ransom, all the while Charles was farting around France doing his own thing. News of her capture had reached Paris on May 25th of 1430. The next day, the theology faculty of the University of Paris, which had uh, taken the English side, requested the Duke of Burgundy to turn, over, turn her over for judgment. Pierre Cochon, the bishop who would serve in Joan's trial, was working tirelessly to acquire the funds to collect the maid. In August of 1430, a special tax was levied by the Estates of Normandy to raise 120,000 livres to cover the expense of the trial, involving the scores of justices, of which 10,000 uh, livres was set aside for Joan's purchase from Jeanne of Luxembourg. Joan was fixed on the fate of Compagnie during her Burgundian imprisonment. 
following every frenzy and desperate to escape to return to the battlefield. Joan had jumped from the Beaurevoir Tower, which was 70 feet high, and she fell into a dry moat. When asked about why she had jumped at her examination, she said the people of Compagnie needed her, and also that she knew that she had been sold to the English. For two days after, after her attempted jump, Joan did not eat or drink, and the physician who treated her believed that she had broken her back. Personally, I think Joan was just spiritually, mentally, physically drained and probably very sore from the fall. And yeah, she was at that point felt pretty hopeless, I'd imagine. By January 3rd, 1431, Joan was in the hands of the bishop. The English moved Joan to the city of Rouen, which served as their main headquarters in France. Apparently, there were a couple of attempts to free her by the Armanacs, who were a French faction, but their attempts were weak sauce. And, you know, come on, man, like the Burgundians were asking for cash and y'all are trying to tell me that you didn't have the money. Like, I know France was broke at this point, but they had the fucking money. And, you know, England raised taxes to pay for, like, to to literally pay to murder a girl, so... I know you have money, y'all just cheap. So Charles threatened to exact vengeance upon the Burgundian troops and upon the English women and children. Like, you stole Jones, so I'm going to attack your kids. Like, bitch, shut up. Like, you are just a shifty-eyed goblin who didn't do anything. And that's what how history is going to remember you, as a shifty-eyed crappy goblin. Like, you suck. Joan was paraded throughout occupied English and Burgundian France. From Beaurevoir to Rouen, she was like a traveling sideshow under heavy guard, like not wearing armor, but shackles, and she was kept in an iron-bound wagon. She was not the mythic image of a maid on a white horse, but was a prisoner of war, kind of similar to how ancient Rome used to have tributes, where they would force the losing commander of an army to like walk through the streets and they would be subject to ridicule and torment. Joan never spoke of the journey through occupied land. There she learned what it was like to go from a symbol of French victory to one of public loathing. People spat at her, they threw things at her because they believed she was a witch, and they called her a, pardon mon français, a dirty cunt because the church told them Female wickedness wore a sexual stain, and they hadn't the imagination or independence of mind to think of anything else. The journey to Rouen was about six weeks long, I believe, and she stopped at many town prisons, one of which was in the city of Arach, where a sympathetic guard provided Joan with a file, though this was quickly discovered and taken from her immediately. The last stop was Le Courtois, on the Normandy coast, where Joan received the company of the ladies of Abbeville, who came to see her as a marvel of their sex. Joan was also allowed to attend Mass, the last one she would ever attend. A priest and prisoner named Nicolas de Querville, I think it's Quet, I think I'm saying that right, de Querville, heard her confession. This was the first and only time Joan would see the sea. I'll share this passage from Catherine Harrison's Joan of Arc book, describing Joan leaving the seaside town. 
Joan was in irons, watching through bars to see how it was that sometimes there was no line drawn between sky and water, and the water wasn't any color at all, none she could name. If she was lucky, she saw a sunset pave the sea with fire, a straight path burning like a fuse toward another day's end. Joan arrived in English-occupied Rouen, which was the second largest city in France. And I'm just going to give you a brief history on Rouen. Uh, well, at least like a 10-11 year history from this point of Joan's trial. So Rouen had been occupied by English forces for about 10 years. And good lord, was there just a whole lot of fucking trauma in this city. My gosh. Henry V of England wanted the city, and he surrounded the city and forced them into submission by starving the citizens. It was winter when he did this, and he had cut off all supplies to the city. The citizens resorted to eating their dogs, cats, and rats, and in some cases I heard infanticide had occurred, and city leaders made the choice to push the old, ill, and orphaned, like roughly about 12,000 of them, out of the city. English forces would not let them leave the surrounding land, though, and allowed them to are not allowed them. I guess they, like, forced them to starve and freeze to death. So, in other words, they could not enter the city because they were kicked out by their own leaders, and they could not leave the land. So they were left, like, unhoused and just completely exposed to the elements while also starving. I really don't understand how Henry V is, like, so glorified in English history. Like, I don't get it. Everyone's like, oh my god, Agincourt, my gosh. Um, but I don't know. He's like, I don't, I don't get it. The list of English heroes, or I guess like the list of heroes England has is questionable. I'm like, guys, I don't think any of them were actually heroes. Yeah, you need a new icon. The cell Joan was held in was eight steps from the castle's oval courtyard, so she was not exactly underground, but had no source of light other than from, like, one small barred window, uh, but for the most part it was considered a very dark cell. Joan was allowed a great bed, but was... And I say great, like, not, wow, this is the best bed ever, but it was, like, a big bed. And, uh, but she was always, like... This is the sucky part, but was always in leg irons. A guard described that, I know for certain that at night she lay chained by the legs with two pairs of irons and tightly secured by another chain, which passed through the legs of her bed. They also added that night and day she was left in the care of five guards, of the lowest sort, like common torturers. They would constantly taunt her, mocking her beliefs, and telling her lies about, oh, the trial's going really well, like, you'll be free any minute now. Like, just total bullshit. They were assholes. Trial proceedings commenced on the 9th of January. The tribunal was composed of pro-English and Burgundian clerics, and overseen by English commanders, including the Duke of Bedford and the Earl of Warwick. British medievalist Beverly Boyd states the trial was meant by the English crown to be a ploy to get rid of a bizarre prisoner of war with maximum embarrassment of their enemies. French theologians participated as well with advice from the University of Paris, a great seat of learning. The trial of Joan of Arc would be well documented and thorough. 
All letters that set up the trial, all learned transcripts of the trial, were available in Latin and French. It is the most extensive trial record that we have from the Middle Ages. The English had an intense interest in this trial and wanted to make sure every detail was accounted for, so there would be no doubt of her guilt. Though it did the opposite of what they desired, it just showed how monstrous these men were. Sixty or so assessors attended the trial daily, including forty from the University of Paris. The Inquisition recruited and trained judges almost exclusively from Franciscan and Dominican orders. Some of these assessors came from their own free will, or to win English favor. Some had motive of vengeance, as Joan's actions for an independent France cost them revenue and power. Bishop Pierre Cochon, the leader of this trial, was described always as being joyous before interrogating Joan, and referred to the trial as beautiful. Cochon had been very careful in selecting the men of this trial. He sought out a man by the name of Jean d'Istive, who has been described by historians as a vindictive sadist, subject to seizures of rage, and fixated on the subject of female pollution. He took every opportunity to refer to Joan as Wainton, or a whore, or a loose woman, or a filthy creature. Joan's family, her friends, and comrades were being interrogated as part of the trial. Even when Joan was not required to testify in front of judges, her interrogation never stopped, and she was spied on constantly. A man had pretended to be from her home country, uh, so from the region in which Domremy is, so I think Lorraine, uh, and provided her with news from home, which was a comfort for her. And he would later, you know, earn her trust, and he would offer himself to be her priest. And while she made confession, like, spies would take that opportunity to, like, eavesdrop on her. So Joan never had a moment of peace. Or privacy. Joan's first public examination was held on February 21st, 1431. It was a short distance from Joan's cell to the chapel, but the march must have been excruciating, like, Joan could barely walk through the courtyard. The ankle cuffs of her leg irons connected to each other by only a few links of chain. And it just, it made it impossible for her to like advance forward, like to even just advance by like a few inches with each step. So Joan could kind of hobble forward, but at a very slow and painful pace. The men constantly tried to trip Joan up with questions. It was purposefully disorienting and disrespectful. The men interrupted each other and fired questions at Joan so fast that Joan would be answering one question, only to be interrupted by another. Joan would plead with them, My dear lords, please take your turns. A few of the judges were surprised that, despite trying to intentionally confuse Joan, she was able to respond with marvelous frankness and clarity, even to very tricky questions, as even the most educated men of the time would have struggled to respond. That first initial examination lasted from 8 to 11 hours. 8 to 11 hours. Like, so long that some of the assessors complained of the exhaustion they felt. Uh, yeah, duh, 8 to 11 hours? That's insane. 
Joan claimed that while standing trial, the clamor of the courtroom drowned the angels out, and that the prison itself was so loud she could not hear them in her prison cell. Joan refused to discuss the angels' personal attributes, nor did she want to tell them about the conversation she had with Charles VII. As I mentioned in the previous episode, Joan never told anyone and insisted that if they wanted to know so badly, they should just ask Charles. And from my knowledge, at least, Charles never said anything about their meeting. Though at this point, like, who the fuck knows? Joan was asked about the design of her standard, her leap of the tower, or her leap from the tower, her blasphemy, and her alleged theft of a horse. And Joan responded with, I wrote to him that he could have the horse back if he wanted. The judges were determined to catch her out on her own words. One by one, Joan listened and responded on certain topics. As she said repeatedly, she was more concerned about displeasing her voices than the church. Joan asked for a day or a week to respond as she wanted to consult with the voices. Which, I mean, makes sense. Like, Joan was not allowed a lawyer, so of course she's going to consult somebody, and that somebody would be the voices she was hearing. Isenbard de la Pierre, troubled by the course of the inquiry, tried to signal and nudge Joan in her answering. Isenbard was scolded by Pierre Cochon, and he had said, Why are you helping this wicked woman? The trial's transcript's most famous exchange is an exercise in subtlety. Asked if she knew she was in God's grace, she answered, If I am not, may God put me there, and if I am, may God so keep me. I should be the saddest creature in the world if I knew I were not in his grace. The question is a scholarly trap. Church doctrine held that no one could be certain of being in God's grace. If she had answered yes, then she would have been charged with heresy. If she had answered no, then she would have confessed her own guilt. The court notary later testified that at the moment the court heard her reply, those who were interrogating her were stupefied. There were some assessors who did not agree with the direction of this trial. The low standard of evidence used in the trial violated inquisitorial rules. Clerical notary Nicholas Bailey, who was commissioned to collect testimony against Joan, could find no adverse evidence. Without this evidence, the court lacked grounds to even initiate the trial. The court violated ecclesiastical law by denying Joan the right to a legal advisor. In addition, stacking the tribunal entirely with pro-English clergy violated the medieval church's requirement that heresy trials be judged by an impartial or balanced group of clerics. Upon the opening of the first public examination, Joan complained that those present were all partisans against her and asked for ecclesiastics of the French side to be invited in order to provide a balance. This request was denied. So laws and rules are being broken like left and right here with this trial, and I mean... You know, when you are the one in power, you can break as many rules as you want, but God forbid anyone else break the law but you. Like, tale as old as time, guys. Joan had a brief break from interrogation from March 4th to the 9th. Pierre Cochon took this time to consult with an expert on clerical law, Jean Loyer, 
and Pierre expected praise from all his diligent, complex details on the trial, but he received quite the opposite. Jean called out the fact that Joan did not have a lawyer, and that anyone who tried to counsel her was threatened, and that she was held in a military prison and not a church one, where Joan would have been guarded by women um, and not men, so she would probably have been guarded by nuns if she was kept in a church prison. That the hearings were being held in a locked castle hall and not in ecclesiastical chambers. Jean Loyer is said to have left for Rome as he did not want anything to do with the trial. Some historians speculate that he might have gone to Rome to inform the Pope of what was going on in Rouen, but I don't really know. Like, and I don't say this information so that we can be like, wow, Jean must have been a really cool guy. Like, yeah, he called out the trial for violating, like, everything, but he didn't really do anything to help Joan. Like, he just left. I'm just saying this because there were there were definitely folks ready to call out, like, how fucked up this trial was, yet offered no solution to Joan's unjust imprisonment. After deliberating with the University of Paris, the examinations would take place in Joan's cell, because, as Bishop Cochon explained, the assessor's various occupations made it impossible for more than a few of them to attend at once. Though it was pretty obvious that Cochon simply wanted to terminate the involvement of assessors he suspected might be sympathetic to Joan's plight, and he wanted to remove the trial from the public eye. Even though the walk from her cell through the courtyard was very difficult, it was the only fresh air Joan was allowed. Since the trials would be moved to her cell, she could no longer leave her room. This was yet another variety of torture in which these men delighted. On the evening of April 15th, Bishop Cochon made an unusual gesture of sending Joan a piece of carp for dinner. In Catholic tradition, one cannot eat meat on Fridays, but typically fish is fine. Peasantry was not allowed that great of fish, and they only could really afford overly salted cod, while the rich ate salmon or fresh carp. Hours passed and Joan was found feverish and vomiting. Two physicians were sent in to see what was going on with her, and she asked for a priest as she feared she was close to death. The stress, abuse, psychological torment, and the hygiene of captivity meant prisoners routinely fell ill and died. Joan's captors did not want her to die from food poisoning, so they did whatever was deemed necessary to save her. They wanted her to die by fire, not from a bad fish. When one of the physicians asked what she believed might have been the cause of her illness, she mentioned the carp that was gifted to her by Pierre Cochon. Jeanne de Esteve was called when the guards alerted him of Joan's illness. Remember, he is the guy who hates women. Like, I, okay, they all hate women, but he was the one historians refer to as a vindictive sadist who ranted about the pollution of the female sex. He told the physician that that was false, but said to Joan, It is you, whore, liar, and wedton, who have taken aloes and other things that made you ill. Knowing damn well she would have had no way to access any of those, like this guy, who, this guy would have been a big fan of Handmaid's Tale. We do not know if Pierre Cochon intentionally meant to poison Joan. He wanted her dead by fire, as much as the next medieval incel dude did, but he was still down to torture her any way he could. 
it is likely that Joan was already under enough stress that her, like, that her dank, horrid cell conditions made her sick, and the carp was just something that pushed her over the edge. It's also possible that the carp that was sent was just slightly aged, and he knew that it was enough to make her sick. Maybe not kill her, but definitely make her sick. All I know is I highly doubt that sending Joan Carp on Friday was an act of generosity, since this guy is such an asshole minion. About a week after the food poisoning, Joan was still quite weak. Bishop Cochon and others visited her cell. The bishop told Joan he was concerned for her soul and that all him and the other intelligent men were just perplexed by her varied answers to their questions. He also added that because she was unlettered and ignorant, that his guidance was coming from a place of genuine generosity. If there is a hell, this guy is definitely there. You are in great peril of body and soul, the archdeacon warned. Your soul in danger of eternal fire and your body of temporal fire by the sentence of your judges. You will not do as you say against me, Joan told him, without evil overtaking you in body and soul. Bishop Cochon called a meeting to determine if the council should torture Joan, and thirteen votes were recorded. Nine said, no, maybe let's not torture her yet, and one of them deferred to the popular opinion, so... I think that means that they were just kind of indifferent, whether they were like, ah, she could be tortured or we can wait, whatever, who cares. Three of them gave a reason as to why it was necessary that they torture her immediately. Master Albert Morel valued torture as a means to discover the truth of her lies. Another said they thought it would be good for the health of her soul to torture her. And the last praised the use of torture as a wise choice. Joan was not put to the rack or whatever method these men were planning. However, on May 9th, Joan was taken down to the dungeon of the castle keep where instruments of torture were displayed before her. Now, there is some debate about whether Joan was kept in an iron cage during trial interrogations. There are no records of her actually being contained within one, but there are accounts of witnesses who had seen a cage. One that would have bound someone by the neck, hands, and feet. I think such a cage did definitely exist, and it was used to torment Joan. Like, you better behave, or we could put you in this cage right now. Like, it was just another form of torture. I definitely wouldn't put it past these men to put her in a cage, but I don't think they did. Like, the trial records are very detailed and it doesn't make it doesn't make sense why they would exclude that from the records but like display the rest of this like carnival of horror like i think if she was caged they would have said it and they'd had no problem saying it because they'd be like oh yeah we kept her in a cage because she's a witch and a demon so what else are you going to do with a demon or a witch but put them in a cage on may 13th richard of warwick an English nobleman and military commander threw a grand formal dinner, and for a nightcap, he took a few select guests with him to Joan's cell, where they were reported to have taken turns mocking her. At Joan's nullification trial, post-execution, a citizen of Rouen who knew the master builder of the castle 
said that one of the guards would boast about allowing anyone in Joan's cell to take a look at the maid. There were also reports that one of the theologians of the trial would visit her cell dressed up as St. Catherine and try to get Joan to confess things to him. They really just would take pleasure in ridiculing her at any chance they got, and they didn't give a shit. It was all just about, like, bringing her down. On May 19th, the University Faculty of Theology concluded that Joan's voices, the saints that would visit her, were either lies or demons. The iniquitous and scandalous demoralization of the people that Joan inspires must come to an end. The quality of the person and the place and the circumstances, either these are imagined, corrupting, and pernicious lies, or these apparitions and revelations are superstitious from malign and diabolical spirits such as Belial, Satan, and Behemoth. The Paris faculty judged Joan as one who believes lightly and affirms rashly. Her belief is evil, and she strays from the faith. So, I've already said it already, but folks like to say this trial was purely English, and like, yes, the English put in a lot of money for this, and they were definitely the the leaders of it, but, you know, like, so was fucking France, and, like, Paris, Paris was occupied by English at the time, or, like, English occupied, uh, but these were French folks that were saying this. These were French bishops and French uh, theologians. This was coming from the University of Paris, so there were just a lot of people at hand with the, the fall of Joan. Like, you can't put sole responsibility on just the English. There were so many people complicit in this. Paris was not done being ugly. They also said that, By dressing as a man, she committed blasphemy, setting aside divine law. She was a traitorous, deceitful crew, and thirsty of the shedding of human blood, sedacious, and an inciter of tyranny. Okay, guys, you can stop describing yourself here. On May 24th, Joan was taken to a scaffold, set up outside a cemetery near a church, and told she would be burned on the spot unless she signed a document, renouncing her visions and agreeing to stop wearing male attire. Joan was greeted by a crowd of people, shouting at her and saying death to the witch. A Parisian professor by the name of Erat preached that, Oh, royal house of France, you have never known monsters to now, but you are dishonored for giving your faith to this woman, this witch, heretic, and child of superstition. Joan responded by defending the man with whom she gave a kingdom to, and who was nowhere to be found. She proclaimed that Charles was a good Christian, and the noblest Christian, who loves the faith and the church. Girl, no. No, 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 girl. Joan was read the Schedule of Abjuration, a document that enumerated the specific errors of faith Joan was alleged to have committed, in which she was now forced to renounce. Joan did not understand exactly what she was signing, and it is recorded as asking or is recorded that she asked the clerics first to review it. She wanted the counsel of the church, but was quickly denied and told if she did not sign, she would be burned that moment. 
Fearing the fire and denied counsel yet again, Joan signed it. It is often assumed that Joan did not know how to write her own name. It's true that Joan would dictate her letters and would have someone write them for her, but she actually did know how to sign her name. Rather than sign her name on the abjuration, she drew a kind of circle in place of a signature and then added an X. Under interrogation, Joan said she'd add an X to an intentionally misleading letter meant to fall into enemy hands so that her own men would know the information contained within it was false. On the document that would denounce the voices and everything Joan believed to be true, she did not sign her name, but a symbol, leading to the suggestion that Joan was not only taunting the judges, but refusing to honor a document she distrusted. After signing, Joan asked to be moved to the church's care, in which Bishop Cushong told the guards to take her back to her old cell and that she was to be imprisoned for life. Once in her cell, Joan was given woman's dress, which she put on immediately and allowed her hair to be shaved off. Three days passed between the signing of the abjuration and the guards reporting Joan's relapse. Bishop Cushong came running in and he told her, "'You promised that you would wear a woman's attire,' to which Joan told the bishop that he had not kept any of his promises to her, that she would be protected by the church." Joan's confessor, Martin Ladvenu, testified for the nullification trial that he had heard from Joan's own lips that a great English lord entered her prison and tried to rape her, and that was the reason she resumed male clothing. Another account states that Joan's guards entered her cell and pulled off the women's clothing that covered her and emptied the sack in which were her male clothes. She had to put them on in order to protect herself. I believe both stories are true. Joan's guards constantly tormented her and evidently allowed strangers in her cell to gaze upon her, like some sort of stolen artifact. One account I read was of an English soldier who said Joan was absolutely a virgin because every time he tried to put his hand up her shirt, she slapped it away. And from the moment Joan set out on her initial quest to tell the Dauphin Charles of her visions, Men were conspiring to rob Joan of her power, her virginity. I believe a lord, a very, very rich lord, be it the Duke of Bedford, that Luxembourg douche, or Warwick, or whoever the fuck, tried to force themselves on her. Whether they succeeded, I do not know. I'd like to believe no, as Joan only admits that rape was attempted, not committed, but that does not make the experience any less horrific. Joan had already been assaulted in various wicked ways. Bishop Cochon was heard laughing when he left Joan's cell to his apartments. A crowd of English notables and soldiers were waiting in the courtyard. Farewell, be of good cheer, it is done, we have got her. Joan was to be burned at the stake for the crime of cross-dressing. May 30th, a Wednesday, a Dominican friar tells Joan she will die that day by fire. She begins to cry and pull at what was left of her hair. Death by fire is a no-go for Catholics. Resurrection of both body and soul is necessary when ascending to heaven. When a body is burned, there is nothing left for God to repair and resurrect. Cremation is often looked down upon in the Catholic Church because of this. 
Joan was allowed to make confession and to receive the Eucharist, which is typically denied to relapsed heretics. She is reported to have received it with such humility, devotion, and copious tears. Joan took her last walk from her cell to the marketplace through a sea of people. Joan's false confessor, Nicolas Lusrois, suffered an improbable last-minute crisis of conscience and began weeping. He tried to climb into the cart Joan was being carried in and begged for her forgiveness. The English forced him off and beat him back as he pleaded for her mercy. The mob was chaotic, and as many as 10,000 people gathered to see Joan burn. They were described as seething with excitement. Four stages were raised, one for the ecclesiastical judges and notable personages, another for the secular judges and bailiff, a third on which Nicholas Meady would preach a final sermon to Joan, and the highest and most visible of them all was on which the stake had been set. Joan was dressed in a rough tunic, and upon her head she wore a sort of bishop-looking hat, known as a mitre. On it was written, heretic, relapse, apostate, and idolater. If that was not enough, a placard set before the pyre said, Joan, who had herself named the Pucelle, liar, pernicious person, abuser of people, soothsayer, superstitious woman, blasphemer of God, presumptuous, unbeliever in the faith of Jesus Christ, boaster, idolater, cruel, dissolute, invoker of devils, apostate, schismatic, and heretic. An English soldier made a little cross out of wood, possibly from the wood provided for the fire, and gave it to Joan. She kissed it and put it in her clothes against her heart. She then asked the court bailiff, Jean Monsieur, if he could bring the crucifix from the church, so that she may look upon it as she burns. The executioner, Geoffroy Sturage, complained that the height of the platform on which the stake had been set had not allowed him to cast a rope around Joan's neck and strangle her, a mercy routinely extended to those being executed, so they would not have to smell themselves being cooked. No, this was to be a slow, protracted burning. No mercy would be given, as none had been given thus far. Joan's last words were Jésus, followed by a symphony of screams. In the process of being burned to death, a body experiences burns to exposed tissue, changes in content and disruption of body fluid, fixation of tissue and shrinkage of the skin. Internal organs can shrink due to fluid loss. The muscles can contract and shrink. It may cause joints to flex, adopting something called a boxer stance, with the elbows and knees flexed and the fist clenched. The shrinkage of the skin around the neck may be severe enough to strangle the victim, death by your own flesh. Fluid shifts in the skull and in the hollow organs of the abdomen can cause hemorrhaging. A body can become fuel for the fire. Cause of death is frequently determined by the respiratory tract, where edema or bleeding of mucous membranes and patchy or vesicular detachment of the mucosa may be indicative of inhalation of hot gases. Complete cremation by death of fire 
is only achieved under extreme circumstances. The citizens of Paris reported that after Joan was dead and her clothes burned away, the fire was raked back and her naked body, lifted above the eyes of the marketplace, was shown to all. When the people had seen enough and looked as long as they had liked at the dead body bound to the stake, the executioner started a great fire again round her poor corpse, and flesh and bone were reduced to ashes. Joan's ashes were gathered and thrown into the river Seine from the medieval stone Mathilde Bridge at Rouen. Pierre Cochon finished the fine details of the trial by getting last-minute statements from participants. He ended with underscoring that the people be taught not to put their faith lightly in superstitions and erroneous frivolities. Joan had not been the answer to war-torn prayers, nor was she God's envoy, but the devil's, shedding human blood, causing popular sedations and tumults, inciting the people to perjury and pernicious rebellions, false and superstitious beliefs, by disturbing all true peace, and renewing mortal wars, permitting herself to be worshipped and revered by many as a holy woman. Cochon's statement was broadcasted from town to town all throughout Europe. He would later receive great favor within the English court and attended the child king Henry the Sixth's coronation. He was given land, titles, and loads of cash. He became an envoy to the child king. He died likely of a heart attack in Rouen. When the nullification trial took place, Pierre Cochon's relatives, nieces and nephews, asked for forgiveness from his crimes and rejected any blood relation. He was excommunicated by the Catholic Church after the retrial of Joan of Arc. His body, originally buried with a marker, was reburied in the 1930s without one. Honestly, though, they should have just, you know, burned his ashes and, or burned what remained of him, be it like a fucking skull or something, and throw it in the sewer. Gilles de Ray, who I had mentioned earlier, had fought alongside Joan, uh, shortly after Joan's execution, he was discovered to be a child murderer, and he was in a lot of debt. And apparently, he hired, like, witches and warlocks or whomever to, like, raise devils to kill, like, debt collectors. I, I respect that. Like, can we do the same for student loan debt? That would be great. So I actually don't know a whole lot about Gilles de Ray's uh, case, uh, but I heard he confessed to being a serial killer and apparently there were like testimonies from parents who lost their children and that led to Gilles de Ray's capture, but there were never any bodies. So there wasn't evidence that he did it. So there has been some speculation that perhaps post uh, Joan's execution that Gilles de Ray was just a target of, um, you know, Target, like, uh, he, you know, he worked for Joan, and so he was a child murderer and a Satanist. Uh, but so I don't really know if there, I don't know if it happened or not. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but there is some, like, reasonable doubt there. I'm sure there's million murder, medieval murder podcast about Gilles Doré, but I just thought I would throw that information out there. Joan grew to be more popular than Charles VII ever dreamed of, and there was evidence that her reputation reached Constantinople. A French traveler who went there a few years after Joan's death visited the city where people kept asking, oh, what happened to the maid everyone was excited about? 
I wish I could see the look on their faces when he told them, Oh, well, um, Rouen burned her alive while Charles was farting around France. At the request of Joan's surviving family, her mother Isabelle Ramey and two of her brothers, Jeanne and Pierre, Joan was given a posthumous second trial. When Isabel was in her seventies, she addressed the opening session of the Appellate Trial at Notre-Dame Cathedral in Paris. The retrial was to investigate whether the initial trial was handled justly and according to ecclesiastical law. Investigation started in 1452, and a formal appeal followed in November of 1455. The Inquisitor's final summary of the case described Joan as a martyr and implicated the late Pierre Cochon with heresy for having convicted an innocent woman in pursuit of a secular vendetta. She was declared innocent on the 7th of July, 1456. Joan's beatification was first proposed in 1869 by the Bishop of Orléans, Félix Dupont-Loup, I think I'm saying that right, Dupont-Loup, who began gathering support from other bishops whose diocese Joan had passed through. Felix was convinced that Joan of Arc was a saint, and he pursued having her officially recognized as one. From 1873 to 1877, Rome was preoccupied with a petition for the beatification of Christopher Columbus. The petition for Columbus was denied, not on the fact that he was a genocidal serial killer who used to keep indigenous women as sex slaves, but because Christopher Columbus might have had a child out of wedlock. According to the church, children from unwed parents are bad, but murdering indigenous children, I guess that's okay. 400 plus years after Joan's murder, church folks still doubted if Joan deserved sainthood. Some cited as reasons not to grant saint status that Joan boasted of her virginity, that she was not always careful or modest, nor did she keep herself from anger. Others stated that Joan refused to share her visions and revelations with the church, and that she did not face death like a martyr, but suffered with great anguish and fear. Joan was beatified on April 18, 1909, and canonized on May 16, 1920. There has been much debate on the source of Joan's voices and visions. Were they from God, or was she perhaps suffering from mental illness? I understand the need to analyze and diagnose Joan's actions and words, but I don't think it matters where the voices came from. If Joan had something like schizophrenia or something else, she would be yet another person with mental illness that was treated violently by the world and considered demonic. I think rather than focusing on the source of her voices, we should believe Joan. I'm not religious, but I don't have to be to believe that in Joan's heart that she believes that the voices came from God. Joan lived in a violent world where her home village was attacked time and time again. She saw the effects of generational violence in the faces of those around her. She saw the ugliness of power and corruption. The people needed a hero. In the wise, poetic words of Bonnie Tyler, Where have all the good men gone, and where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? 
Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night, I toss and I turn, and I dream of what I need. Joan should have lived to a bright old age, and seen the end of the Hundred Years' War. Her country should have protected her at whatever cost. T'was not for Joan's actions, France would never have survived that age. European nations would have torn apart France like piranhas to a chunk of flesh. Joan is celebrated as a hero in France and throughout the world, but Joan was destroyed by people who did not want to share their space, and who hated all things good in women. Men of holy power and monarch power used and abused her to preserve their own wealth and status. Joan was a dreamer and a warrior, stopped in the height of her military career, because her light shone too bright for their comfort. Joan's closest comrades reported that every time at dusk or vesper, Joan retired into a church and would have the bells ring for half an hour. She chose to lay beside her men as a good general does with their army. She would walk the fields post-battle and weep over the dead. One account recalls her comforting an Englishman and praying with him while resting his head on her lap. Joan was good and they hated her for it. The Seine River flows in a northwest direction, eventually finding its way to the English Channel. I like to believe that Joan's ashes floated away from France and made their way to the sea, that she is now a part of the sea salt and free of pain. So I really hope you enjoyed part two of Joan of Arc. I have quite a bit of sources for this episode. The first being Joan of Arc, A Life Transfigured by Katherine Harrison. For podcast, I have True Crime Medieval, The Murder of Joan of Arc. History Extra Podcast, The Trials of Joan of Arc with historian Helen Castor and Dan Jones, and the English Have Disembarked. Biographics YouTube channel episode on The Maid of Orion, qspirit.net, Britannica.com, History.info, and Wikipedia for that lovely bit on being burned alive. If you want to show your support and for podcast updates, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. Until we meet again, thank you for listening and stay safe. As Joan would say, au revoir!